Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. Founded in 1602, the Dutch East India Company was the largest global corporation in the 17th century and, more than any other East India Company of the time, transformed the relationship between Europe and Southeast Asia. The company's greatest prize was the spice trade, so lucrative that a 100 years before, Columbus had sailed west to try to, for- to find a shortcut to it. For much of the 17th century, the Dutch had a virtual monopoly on nutmeg, pepper, cinnamon and cloves. More than their rivals, they also brought tea, coffee, porcelain and silk to Western Europe. This dominance brought the Dutch into conflict with other European countries in the region. At first Portugal, but soon they were running conflicts with the British. At one peace treaty, the British gave up the nutmeg island of Ron, while the Dutch gave up New Amsterdam, which the British renamed New York. With me to discuss the Dutch East India Company are Anne Goldgar, reader in early modern European history at King's College London, Chris Niersras, lecturer in global history at Erasmus University, Rotterdam, and Helen Paul, lecturer in economics and economic history at the University of Southampton. Anne Goldgar, what was the state of the spice trade in the 16th century and who was trading with whom? Well, in the 16th century, the Portuguese had a monopoly on the spice trade as far as the Europeans were concerned. Um, They uh, started out in the late 15th century by discovering a route around Africa, which was actually quite difficult to get around because of of winds and and, uh, currents. And uh, in 1496, 1497, they found their way there. And then in very quick uh, succession, they conquered um, uh, spice uh, routes and and were able to take over spice uh, uh, centers in a number of places, uh, in particular in Goa, uh, Malacca, and Hormuz, all between 1510 and, and 1515. And those three places are really important because they uh, controlled the spice routes, all of the spice routes from uh, from uh, uh, Asia to Europe, except for the overland trade. In uh, which was controlled by um, by Arabs, um, and so they were able to uh, to bring the trade to Europe, to bring products to Europe, um, and were able really to dominate the trade for the whole century. Um, doing so by raising money in the East. What was the lure of the spice trade? What spices were they after? Well, the ones that you mentioned. Um, it, pepper. Why was, was pepper so important? Pepper was important because it was, um, first of all, it was a commodity which was very rare in, in, in Europe and very expensive. It was used, uh, as all of these were, in both um, cooking but also in, for medicinal purposes. And it was, uh, it, it, was, it's very, it was very important as a preservative, um, as something to give taste to food which was otherwise bland. Um, and it was very um, much desired. And they were able to, uh, to have a monopoly on this, uh, on this trade. I mean, much of, this, of the work that the, um, that, the, uh, that the Portuguese company did was actually trying to raise money in order to buy the pepper because they didn't have the money. Uh, they didn't have enough uh, to trade with in uh, the East. And this is actually a problem for the Dutch as well, that they don't, they, the only thing that people in the East were really interested in was, was, was silver and gold. And they had to raise the money in the East. And so they did that by selling various products around the East and then using that money to bring them the yeah, spices a, back. Sorry, come on to that. There's a war in the Netherlands at the time. Yes. And mighty wars for a long time with Spain. Yes. Uh, and yet they, they, the, the 
How did that affect the Dutch uh, attitude to the sea trade? Well, it, it affected the attitude and the circumstances. This was an extremely important issue as far as the, uh, as the Dutch... Um, setting up of the East India Company and the other rest of the trade. Yeah, there's a major... There's a specific question is, how did it affect that attitude to the sea trade? Okay. Um, um, their attitude to the sea... Tra- well, I mean, they, they were already great seafarers, um, but, they're, but they're shipping... They were mainly shippers. Um, and there was a, a really important shift in the way that um, uh, the, in, the, in what they did in the, in the early uh, 17th century and late 16th century because of changes that came because of the war. Um, and the setting up of the trade was something which, which um, stemmed from that, which I can talk about if you like. Um, but the, uh, their, their attitude was that the trade was, was partly... Um, a, a means of waging war, but that you know that and that had to do partly with the with the composition of the people who were involved in the trade, um, and the changes, the economic changes that happened. Because the I mean the importance of the war, the war really forced the Netherlands uh, into a or or gave the Netherlands an opportunity to be in a in a very different place economically than previously, because it. Um, it gave the uh, the Netherlands a, a lot more capital, a lot more a lot more skilled uh, trading um, a population because the war f- um, once the uh, Spanish had conquered the uh, the southern Netherlands, the, what we now call Belgium, in 1585, and particularly the port of Antwerp, which was the main port uh, for northern Europe, it's um, uh, a lot a large number of skilled and wealthy merchants left, and they went. They went all over the place, but a lot of them went to Amsterdam. Thank you very much. Now, Chris, uh, how, why did the, they form the Dutch East India Company? Uh, well, uh, the official name of the Dutch East India Company is not the Dutch East India Company, but it's the United uh, East India Company. So actually, uh, although it was founded in 1602, as you uh, rightfully claimed, in the period before 1602, there was already a period of seven years when there were different East India Companies within the Dutch Republic. And as we've just heard, uh, this was also the time that the Dutch Republic uh, had rebelled against the King of Spain, who also was the King of uh, Portugal. So they were, as uh, and as uh, rightfully said, they were a bit worried about their position in, in trade. And in, in the period before they started uh, the, uh, the directly trading to, to Asia, uh, they had already been partaking in the spice trade as they had a contract with the Portuguese to supply them these uh, these spices and exactly these were ex- actually these traders from Antwerp who had that uh, that contract for Northern Europe, and at this time, as there was a war going on, the Portuguese couldn't completely do without these wealthy merchants. So they uh, were thinking of how could we get rid of this uh, contract with with Dutch people. So they started looking for other partners like Germans and Italian merchants, and they were planning on giving that um, that contract to these people. So these. Dutch merchants, they started thinking, well, they want to shift that contract that we had to other people. So they were thinking, maybe we should start this trade ourselves directly with Asia and bypass the Portuguese. At the same time, there was something else happening. Also, the English were at war with the Spanish and the uh, Portuguese. And that meant that there was a lot of English privateering going on. And this meant that the price of pepper went up because a lot of these privateers, privateering vessels took the Portuguese ships that returned from Asia with spices. So a lot of these spices were lost or damaged or uh, these ships were sunk. So there was not a lot of pepper coming in. And there was also an alternative route, 
through land, with the uh, Italian cities being very important, importing it through that route, they were not able to import more pepper either. So there was a shortage of pepper. So the price of pepper was going up. So there's a push and a pull factor in uh, that moment in time when these merchants in, in, in different cities in the Dutch Republic, so it's all over Holland, so it's in Amsterdam, it's in Rotterdam, it's in, in Delft, it's in Enkhuizen, uh, it's in Horn, but it's also in, in the province of Zealand. They started thinking, we should go to Asia and get these spices ourselves. Why did they form one company, which is known generally as VOC? Why did they form the VOC, the United uh, East India Company? Well, at a certain moment in time, these uh, um, these merchants in the different cities, they started competing with each other. So some of these trips that they made were very profitable, other ones were much less profitable. And um, there was a uh, one of the most... Uh, uh, famous also statements of the Dutch Republic was uh, Johan van Oldenbarneveld. He decided that these companies should be put together. But this was a, something that merchants, the merchants that were running these companies, didn't really like at but first they did sight. Do it. Yes, and the question is why? Why would they? Why would they yeah. actually yeah. Uh, want to join in one company? But the thing that they feared was that if they would do this that this company would become a vehicle of state and of war. So there's always this idea, of course, you had to... But why did it was they always do it an arm- in the end, then? We've had why they feared. Yeah, why, why exactly, I'm why coming to the point. It, yes. So they they knew that uh, that if they would get on board with the state, it might become a vehicle of war, and that would cut into profitability. So they had to uh, be uh, granted privileges by the state in order to, to um, make them believe that they could... Uh, get their money out because they were afraid that they would let, lose their money. That's just how merchant thinks. Can I make a, make a profit or do I lose my money? So what the state gave them was that they said, okay, we're making your share of the company an impersonal share that you can sell. So this was actually the start uh, of uh, stock capital. So uh, And then they said, at any moment in time that you think I want to sell my part because I'm fearing that the state will take over and it will become war, you could sell that at the stock exchange uh, at Amsterdam, which in that way became the first stock exchange in the world. So that was the first, uh, that was the, the guarantee that they had that they could get their money out at any moment that they wanted. And they got all sorts of other powers, didn't they? They got sovereign powers. We'll come into that later. When they were at yes. sea, they got sovereign powers as well. Helen, uh, we t- Anne mentioned trade very early on and trade had increased the appetite or enabled the Dutch, let's call them that, to increase their appetite for working at sea. Can you talk a bit more, which was introduced by Anne, of trade and war going together at that time in the 17th century? Yes, this is what historians... It seems to mean constant war. We want people in there all over <laughs> yeah. the place, don't they? Yes, which you'd think would be um, antithetical to trade, but actually uh, this is what historians call the fiscal military state approach, where you have states waging war to have trade routes, colonies and trading rights, and also to have protectionist political policies, and then being backed up by elements of the commercial sector... So you have these kind of quasi-public institutions like the VOC, which have, as you say, some kind of almost state-like powers in in some areas. And the idea is that they are part of this whole um, mixed strategy of trying to dominate other European states or to keep a balance of power through combining commercial power and military power. So it's not the free trade through peace that we're probably expecting. It's more the sense of 
we know that there's going to be wars in this kind of competitive environment. But to develop the point <clears throat> that Chris was embarked on, once they'd become a united group, mm-hmm. they, were, they weren't a state... It's very, it's very important to distinguish it. Mm-hmm. They weren't a state group. They actually got sovereign powers for mm-hmm. themselves. Can you develop that a bit, which, which Chris began to do? Well, they got powers that we think of as being particularly today, state powers, like making their own coinage, minting their own coinage, and then having the right to have various... to wage war, to declare war in various places. And this is perhaps... It makes them what has been called a a kind of company state approach, that they are... Even though they have shareholders, they are acting almost like a state within a state. And then when they're outside of European waters... They really are the state, and they start demanding um, that people, other foreign ships, eventually have to salute their ships and this sort of thing, as if they are really uh, a sovereign national power. I think it's important to get it in at this stage how this, how original this was. In this, this is a massive enterprise coming out of a state, a small but powerful and rich state, enriched, as again Anne said, when the Spanish drove a lot of the people from the south, as it were, what we now call Belgium. It's very difficult, Europe, then. It's not too difficult. (laughs) Anyway, drove them north, and a lot lot of very rich people came up north who had money to spend. And uh, but we're talking about a sort of middle class. Uh, merchant class taking over in a way that it wasn't doing anywhere else in Europe to the advantage of the state. Is that right? Um, yes, more or less. And certainly it's because of that very small country with this great, if you like, the trade, the international trade overshadows anything else. If it had, they had been a big landmass like, or a, a big country like France with a strong autocratic monarchy, you might not have had this. You would have had the top-down approach. But with the merchants bringing in so much profit, it's unsurprising, really, that they have a lot more relative power, politically speaking, within the state, within that very small state of the Netherlands. Fairly briefly, because we've got quite enough on our hands with the Dutch. But at the same time, the British East India Company was starting. It had been founded in 1600, two years before, but it wasn't doing anything like as well. Was that to do with the uh, organisation of the British uh, Britain at the time, or was it, what was it to do with? Well, they weren't perhaps as well organised. There were various ways of thinking about this. They weren't. The Dutch, for instance, were very keen to keep records about the sailing routes and to be very precise about that, while the English were much more ad hoc. Um, and as well, you've got the, the relative strengths of the Navy, the maritime um, sector at the time is different. The Dutch initially start off a lot with a lot uh, more shipping, much more skill, and then over time eventually that situation reverses. But in the beginning, the Dutch have the advantage. And Galba, so we've basically got ships from Western European countries going to Asia, very perilous, as you uh, I- indicated, around the Cape of Good Hope, these cross-currents and these winds, as again, you, which were difficult to navigate, but they got there yeah. uh, and they were bringing, uh, bringing stuff back to Europe. But they were also trading within Asia yes. itself. Can you tell us, with the Portuguese, but let's stick to the Dutch now because it gets too, too, too much information, how they were doing that and what advantage it brought them? Well, um, the, the, I think the, the point goes back to what I said before, which is that there's, there wasn't a lot in Europe that the people in Asia wanted. They, what they wanted was specie, gold and silver, particularly silver. Um, and the problem was to, to, to raise that 
money. And so um, the, the Dutch really took over the uh, the what this uh, what is known as the country trade or the port to port trade, um, which the Portuguese had been operating already as a, uh, in the in the 16th century, and what that involves is um, bringing specie money from silver, particularly from uh, from Europe, and then taking it to places um, and selling. Um, buying things and then selling them to other people in the um, in the region in order to in order to raise money. Um, so, for example, um, going to India, buying uh, cloth there, um, taking that to the Spice Islands and buy, and buying uh, spices there, taking the spices to um, uh, to to China and buying silk there, taking the silk to Japan and, and, and getting silver there, taking the silver back to the Spice Islands to buy more spices, and then taking them back to, um, to um, India. That model that I just gave you is the Portuguese model. But the Dutch did something extremely similar. And essentially, that raised enough capital to be able to, um, uh, to, uh, uh, to finance the trade, while also gaining um, um, the kinds of items that you spoke of, the, the spices, but also porcelain, silk, um, and other items from uh, from Asia to to sell within uh, within Europe. And so, so they're both operating a trade within uh, Asia, which where the products never come back to Europe, but also bringing a lot of things back, which then um, either get sold on to other countries, um, uh, which is a very important part of the trade, um, or get processed. For example, raw silk comes from Japan and then is processed in Amsterdam by silk merchants and made into cloth, and that's then sold on. And that's processing trade, which makes Amsterdam into an entrepot, uh, is a very important part of this. Chris, Chris, what were the Dutch able to do, or were they able to do more in Asia than the Portuguese had done, and if so, how? Well, I, I think they did. They did something similar to the Portuguese, but at the same, something different. And the difference uh, lies in that they took it uh, a step further than the Portuguese did, where the Portuguese were very much aimed at controlling trade and trade routes. Uh, yeah. The Dutch, they decided that if they wanted to have a profitable. Uh, profitable trade in, in Asia, then they should have control over the spice-producing areas. Now, that sounds much simpler than it was, because, for <coughs> instance, pepper is so widespread throughout Asia that you cannot and nobody ever controlled all those areas. But those small little, those small spices that we were talking about, like cinnamon, uh, nutmeg, and cloves, and mace, they all grow on uh, often relatively small islands, or uh, in the case of cinnamon, on uh, what is present-day Sri Lanka, Ceylon, on a slightly different, uh, larger island. So what they, what their strategy was for the first around 80 years of their uh, presence in Asia was to get hold of these production areas. Now, that, that, that didn't mean that they took, uh, always mean that they took complete control. In the case of the uh, um, nutmeg, uh, so in the, the Banda Islands and the Moluccan Islands, yes, they did take control. They just conquered one island and they got rid of all the other production of the area areas. So they had complete control over all the production of these goods in that area. And that gave them a very powerful position. Because Can I pick up the word yeah. conquered? Because let's get it straight. There was a lot of brutality went on. If they couldn't yes. get what they wanted by negotiation, the Dutch particularly, or tell me I'm wrong if I'm wrong, were very brutal and the, the scars are still there to this day in, in places in Asia. Well, it's, it's a very, it's, it's more complicated in the sense that, yes, you were right. If you look at 
the conquest of these uh, these spice islands it was quite brutal and uh, many people lost their lives but you also have to realize that the VUC was all over Asia and in many other regions they didn't have that power they tried to beat for instance the Chinese at sea and they for two times they failed they were beaten themselves in India they were they met with the they they had to do with the uh, Mughal empire and this Mughal empire was so powerful that if if the VUC wanted something he could just say no so they were happy to just trade there so it's very it's not just it's not you should not think of the situation in Asia as Europeans coming to Asia, imposing themselves on the Asians because they were superior. That was absolutely not the case. In some places, they saw possibilities and they took advantage of the situations. In other places, you could see the VUC as a subject of uh, the local ruler. So in the case of the Mugo or in Japan, they had to send every year, they had to send presents to the Japanese emperor and uh, to the shogun um, in order to get trade done. And in in Asia, that's perceived as you saying, I'm subjugated to your authority. I'm lower than you are. So it's not a case of the Dutch East India come, uh, going to Asia and imposing itself on all others. In the case of the Spice Islands, yes. But there's a particular goal there, and that is those spices were not just wanted in Europe, but they were also wanted in Asia. So they used those spices, those small spices, to open up that trade. And then you get the whole circle that Anne has been describing where yeah, these spices like went to India, they went to Japan, and then they start trading and they start moving that system of trade. Can I just take something up with you, Helen, that has been mentioned there by Chris, but if you talk about it, um, very good to be told that the moguls just brushed them aside, they had to be supplicants there, mm-hmm. as the East India Company had, with a fingernail on India for a long time, and Japan kept them out of Japan. They built them a little island, you could stay there, but you couldn't come into Japan at all. They controlled them by VOC and later. <coughs> but China was the big, excuse me, China was the big one. That was the big goal. And China, I love the disdain of China. We had nothing that they wanted at all, <laughs> except gold and silver, if you know, if they had a mind to take it that afternoon. And so there was this big thing there that was part of the part of the equation. How did it fit in? Can't be as crudely as I said. Well, they were the Chinese, the emperor. And, of course, most of these great mandarins, they didn't think, as as you say, that the Westerners had anything to offer them. They had the Middle Kingdom. They didn't really need anything else. So they allowed trade, but it was very specifically kept to one particular port area. So what's Canton, Guangzhou, however you want to say it. But they were... They would allow foreign shipping to come up to an area called Wampoa and then they had to stop there and they could then go further in Chinese boats. But they had a very clear sense of authority. So they had these um, somebody called Hoppo who would come on board the ship and inspect it and the European ships had to fire gun salutes and they would play music and give presents to this Hoppo and the hoppo would say, you can't have your, your escort warship if you've got one. You can't have it in this area. You've got to leave it in a different mooring. So it was very clearly the Chinese were in control of that. And in this area, you had little factories all next to each other for the different European traders. And by factory, I mean a kind of office come storehouse. It's a very good corrective what <coughs> Chris was saying and what you were saying to the general idea of the Western Europe just sweeping across Asia and taking no prisoners and dominating and bringing the West to the East and teaching them a lesson. That isn't the case at all. Can I talk about monopolies? You can. Go on uh, then. Um, 
once you the idea of having a European monopoly is a bit of a, a joke when you realise that it doesn't mean anything once you get past the Cape to the people who are the local people. So what they would sometimes do, say in India, is they might play off the Europeans against each other. And then you've got an issue of whether the Europeans should form any kind of cartel arrangement amongst these monopolies, whether whether really this spice trade in Europe is a monopoly or is it really an oligopoly of different big players. But the reason for trying to restrict supply into Europe is uh, to keep prices high but not too high to stop with free trade what you might expect is a glut in the market and a price dropping and people wouldn't then see spices as a luxury good anymore so monopoly such as it is a bit like the slave trade monopoly is a bit of a a wish on the european side it's not necessarily what you see on the ground you wanted to come in chris yeah, I originally wanted to come in on China, but I'll, I'll step in into this discussion too. Because if you look at that monopoly, uh, the monopoly that they were granted is... Uh, we're talking about the VOC now. Back yeah, the, the VOC, Dutch. yeah, and all the other... <coughs> the Dutch East India Company is not the only one with a monopoly, which sounds strange. But they all had the monopoly to sell those Asian goods in their own country. So they had, the, they had a monopoly on that. Although there's differences between companies. Because, for instance, the Dutch East India Company, they had the first right to sell Asian products... Uh, in their country, but if other people would bring Asian products from European countries, that would be all right. For instance, the English East India Company was much more strict. They had the only right to sell these goods in their country. That means that uh, what that gives to these companies for advantage is that they always know that they, when they buy something in Asia, that they can sell it in their own country. So it guarantees the profitability. So it also returns to the first question that you uh, gave me. So these monopolies, they're very much a European thing. And if you move towards Asia, you can see that those monopolies uh, don't really make sense. Only in the case of the, the small spices and to a certain extent pepper, there's much more control of the Europeans. But for the rest, if you look at the 18th century, when they start evolving so they move beyond spices and they move into or in uh, into tea and textiles uh, and coffee uh, in those areas as there were many more companies active in those trades there's no real monopoly you can't really speak of any monopoly not even in Europe and if there was a monopoly they would bypass it so for instance England is a good case everybody's still drinking tea in England but in the, the 18th century Massive amounts of tea were smuggled into England from uh, across the channel from France and from the uh, Dutch Republic and from Sweden. So people tried to bypass the monopoly. So it's a it's a bit of an illusion this this idea of a monopoly. And and uh, in what ways? We, Amsterdam has been mentioned as becoming of enormous importance for reprocessing mm. as well as. Can you tell us a bit about that and how it outclips eclipsed Antwerp? Okay. Well, I mean, um, Amsterdam had already been um, a reasonably important port before the big changes of the 1590s that I mentioned. But it was important largely as a place which was involved in um, in shipping and in and in fishing. Um, the the Netherlands is important. Um, uh, as a country already because it doesn't have much of an agricultural base. The water table is too high. And that means that there are a lot of, there's a lot of labor which is available to be involved in industry, but also in going to sea for one reason or another. And that was true already in the 16th century that Amsterdam was the, the place where most of the Antwerp trade was carried by shippers from Amsterdam. And what happens in the 1590s is that with this group of of um, 
uh, of wealthy merchants moving out to other places, including to London, Cologne, um, Southern Europe, and so on, and then eventually deciding that things aren't going to get better in uh, in southern uh, the southern Netherlands, they go to Amsterdam, which is a place where they knew the language and and the institutions seemed to be good. And so Amsterdam became a place which had. Uh, amazing amounts of capital, expertise, but also contacts all over the place, which helped to make the um, uh, make make uh, the trade possible much greater. And so it changed, um, and uh, Amsterdam grew enormously between uh, between uh, the 1590s and the middle of the 17th century. Um, grew by uh, three to four times. Um, Many industries uh, uh, came became important, um, and as I believe Chris uh, mentioned earlier, there are also institutions which start to develop, which make Amsterdam a particularly good place to trade. There's a stock exchange. There's a, an exchange bank where um, everybody had to have their money uh, in order to um, to uh, uh, to trade. That was required. Which, there were lots of shareholders, though, even small shareholders. But yes, there was a indeed. lot of trading going on at a lower level lot, as well as a big level. Indeed, yeah. there's people a great... bought in. The wages of skilled workers, I'm told, indeed. from your notes, were very high, and so they would punt, have a punt. That's right. I mean, the there was a there was a lot of excess income, really, and uh, its wages were much higher than in surrounding countries, um, um, and. Um, interest rates were very low, so a lot of Europeans wanted to come and trade there. I want to get to, to, to Helen, Helen Paul. The, the realities were Amsterdam increased also because the Dutch blockaded uh, Antwerp, and so Antwerp was sort of slowly strangled while Amsterdam was allowed to bloom. Is there anything in that? Well, if you get rid of a competitor, but then... But they did do that, didn't they, yeah? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you've certainly got... Um, these inter-rivalries, internal rivalries as well. I mean, you see that later on with them getting concerned about other Dutch cities that might um, eclipse Amsterdam or might be a competitor. But really... Please, can you keep talking? Oh, sorry. sorry. Re- really, um, I suppose they're on the, the lookout for competitors wherever they might lurk and using some pretty strong tactics if necessary. Was the sort of, were the goods changing rapidly in the 17th century? Or Chris has indicated that further on the 18th and 19th century, other goods came in, or was it fairly steadily based on spices in the 17th century? Well, it, start, it starts off really with the spices because there's, you've got to, I suppose, educate the customer as to what these other foreign products are. And I suppose spices are a much easier sell mm. than some of the later products because it really changes how people live. The introduction of a large amount of things like silk and porcelain changes culture within Europe. In what way? Because people, when you start using China as opposed to, say, pewter, you've got to perhaps be more cautious with it. You can't slam it on the table and you maybe have to be introduced to things like tea. So Samuel Pepys, for instance, says in his diary, I had this ch- tea, a China drink. So he has to explain what it is to himself. And you need, I suppose, then to have the, all the rituals that are developed around the tea table, having a tea table itself, a tea service, having tea caddies that lock so you can put the tea in it. This is an expensive thing for all that paraphernalia and the tea itself. So you need to have a sense that it's not outlandish to have people round for a cup of tea. And changing manners with the wearing of silk and so on. Yes, and silk is a real devil to keep clean at this time. So you can't actually 
touch it. You're not supposed to touch it very much, and that changes the way that you even move around whilst wearing these great outfits, if you are allowed to wear them. Okay. One thing that's um, that I think is also very interesting is that the exposure to these new products is um, is something which um, allows uh, Europeans to become much more um, aware of what else is out there, ethnographically but also scientifically. And so the um, the the East India trade from the very start, the ships get met by. Uh, naturalists who want to see the the animals and the and the plants which are coming in, and many new things are introduced, and this bec- makes helps to make the Netherlands a really important uh, uh, country for uh, scientific work, especially at the end of the 17th century and into the 18th century. You have people in who are actually out in the Indies. For example, the shell collector, the interesting man, blind shell collector, Rumphius, who uh, writes a book about the shells of, of, of Ambon. And uh, th- that becomes a really um, important book for people who are uh, getting interested in natural history. And so it, it's a, it's, that's a big aspect of the, this trade, I think, is the way yeah, in which Yeah, and the this... development of maps, the development of exactly. navigation methods, and there's a whole massive culture comes yes, out of that. Indeed. Chris, um, I go back to what, to what extent the Dutch were imposing their will on their trading partners in the forest. You've told us very timely that they weren't imposed they were on China, Japan and India for a start but uh, uh, that was going on there but can I, it's a pre-question in the Atlantic the Spanish were taking a battering mm-hmm. because their, their fleets their silver fleets their fleets were being looted and sometimes captured entire for the money to go to Asia so we've got we've got a bit of globalisation setting in quite early there uh, well, I, are you implying that no, they went, that they all stole all that all that silver from the Spanish silver fleets, or uh, no, no, not all, but a lot was going on. It was mm-hmm. diminishing Spain's power, and therefore diminishing Portugal's of power. Of course, yes. So I'm trying to get balance of powers here. Mm-hmm. They're going down there. The overland route is the Arab overland route is losing is losing its authority yes. because of the sea routes. Mm-hmm. The Dutch are imposing over there. I know it's a big ask, but have a go. I'm not sure what, what you're asking of me. So you want I'm me to asking how effective the Dutch were in bringing Asia under the control they wanted it to have? Well, I, I think if you look at the 17th century, they were they were very effective. If you look at the shipping of the Dutch East India Company, they outstripped all the shipping of all the other East India companies. Uh, they had they were able to impose themselves. What they what they did is, and this is something that is maybe. Uh, slightly different than imposing their wills on the on the Asians is that they looked at where the Portuguese were and they actually took over the Portuguese um, um, uh, um, uh, settlements of trade and often they did so not by themselves but we can we cannot see European expansion as something in Asia as something uh, like I said Europeans imposing themselves on, on Asians the Europeans were very effective at sea. They really had a, a head start there because of, of, of the use of gunpowder. But on land, these cannons didn't really amount to much. And we also have to realize that Europeans, when they arrived in Asia, they they died by the dozens. And this is particularly true for the Dutch East India Company and even more true in the 18th century than in the 19th century. But we have to, to realize that uh, a lot of these people died. So, for instance, in 1775, there were 370 soldiers that arrived in Batavia, within two years, 80% of them were dead. So there's a, an astonishing death rate. And once they start moving from the coast land inwards, they they die even quicker. So they are not able to do anything against Asian rulers. 
without the help of other Asian rulers. And they are not able to do anything against the Portuguese with the help, without the help of Asian rulers. And for instance, if you look at the island of Ceylon, present-day Sri Lanka, the Dutch, they, uh, they conquered all the areas of the Portuguese, but they did so with the help of the local king, which was the king of Kandy. And uh, what they did is they split up the Portuguese lands between the two of them. So it's not just that the Dutch took over. Uh, they didn't took, take over from uh, Asians there. And then they said to the king, you have a big bet with us, so you have to give us all the cinnamon. So they, there's the trading part. So there's a, a complicated I picture got that. there. I'm going to move on. I'm afraid. Sorry to be rushing you a bit, but it's maybe a rather too big subject, but you're well up to it. Can you just, Helen... I'm, I'm trying to get an idea, and if it doesn't work, let's skip it. Uh, um, um, the global trade chain, the Spanish Empire, the greatest empire there was at that time, was in the West, and it was being reduced largely by attacks on its great fleets, uh, and that was largely to get the gold and silver to then pass on in international trade. Is that right? Well, there's certainly points where fleets are taken. And what certainly- for, then? Well, eventually, well, obviously, just for that gold and silver, and and you're right. There is an outflow of gold and silver from Europe, for what from where, however, it's obtained. There's still a lot of concern about the East India trades draining Europe of gold and silver at a that, time yeah. of commodity money. Now, just a second. You've had a long talk. I'm staying with Helen for a moment. <laughs> um, and so there's that. What about the overland trade? The uh, overland trade, the the uh, Silk Road and so on, the Arab trade there, uh, overland European trade. Is that diminishing too, commensurately? Those routes, because it's there's only so much you can take on poor roads, really. And then every time you go anywhere, you might get taxed. So certainly a sea route, as the ships get bigger and bigger, it makes more and more sense to go by sea. And so you, the, the relative costs, I suppose, in, in mean it's more likely that you're going to get the carriage trade, a bit like the cargo ships of today. You can take an awful lot by sea. And similarly, the, the predominance of the, <clears throat> the Mediterranean trade, the great Italian trade and so on, is slipping away to the west. It's going to the, the Atlantic coast, as it were. That's right, and the kind of shipping they have in the Mediterranean is a different technology to yes. the Atlantic, so they're not able to come out of the Med and compete on the same terms. Now, Anne, uh, you started to say the sci- about the importance it had for the scientific development, mm-hmm. uh, but it was really extraordinary what happened in Holland at that time. Now, I'm not saying it was entirely coffered by uh, the m- stuff that was coming from uh, Asia. There was all sorts of things going on. But it was an enormous uh, advance in particularly navigational methods yes. and inventions. You see, we know about the art and so on and so forth, but let's stick to the practical stuff. Uh, how good was that? Were they, did they win because their technology was so far ahead? I think that that helped. Um, I don't think that that was, their, that was the main thing, but I think that... The, their, what was the main thing? Then? Well, the main thing was simply their circumstances in terms of war, war and peace. Um, the times when they were doing well were the times when they weren't actually um, fighting, and so the 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 big the big push as far as the uh, the the Dutch were concerned was in the period from 1609 to 1621 when they were at, uh, had a truce with the uh, with the Spanish, and that was the point where they really surged ahead. Um, um, However, the I mean, and then they go back to war starting in 1621, and between 1621 and 1649, they continue 1648, they continue to be at war, um, and that brings an economic depression to the to the Netherlands, and it's a lot harder. So, really, the relationship with Spain um, affects their relationship with trade, but 
Um, I think you're quite right to suggest that the um, that you know nav- their navigational ability, their cartography, um, the the great care that they take in mapping everything, um, because it is as um, as Helen was saying that it's a very different thing to sail. Uh, through open ocean than it is to sail from port to port along a coast, which is what the Mediterranean trade did. And so they needed to have the scientific instruments, they needed to have the maps, and they had, uh, there was an enormous amount of that. And it was, uh, the, Nether- the Amsterdam was a big center for map printing, for example. Chris, we're coming to the end now. You were there when, when we began in 1602. It began to fade away, the Dutchies. Mm-hmm. When and Why? Well, if you look at the decline of the VUC, then uh, we can see that the actual demise started in 1780. So that's something else than the decline. But the actual demise of the East India Company started in 1780 when there was a war, the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War, as we call it in Holland, between uh, Holland and England. And a lot of the Dutch ships were lost. And uh, that meant that the Dutch East India Company couldn't pay off its debts anymore uh, because there was nothing coming in. They weren't selling anything. They were built out by the. Uh, they were helped by the state at that moment in time. So they prolonged their existence until 1795, when a new war broke out, and then they were pushed over overboard and they uh, almost went bankrupt. But the state stepped in, uh, almost like the, we have seen with the banks a couple of years ago, uh, and they took over their possessions in order uh, and continued that as a colonial empire. But those cracks of decline already started appearing before because there was a big debt that the VUC. Uh, had to deal with. And this debt came from the moment that they weren't able to pay their trade from uh, Asia anymore, from the inter-Asian trade. Then they started building up a debt and they had to export more silver, which they had to borrow because they were not willing to share the profits with more shareholders. So they didn't want to enlarge the capital stock. So that meant that they were deeply in debt and at that moment that war broke out, that they were pushed over. Well, thank you very much for that summary. It's been a gallop. (laughs) <laughs> but thank you very much for galloping so expertly. Thanks to Anne Goldgar, Helen Paul, Chris Nistras. And next week we'll be talking about the ancient Maya civilization of Central America. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. What didn't we say that was important? I think one of the things is the movement of people, people who are not yeah. European around this system, like the Lasker the sailors mm. who are from beyond the Cape, the Indian or and Indonesian, and also the slaves have brought in to the Dutch colony of Cape Town that then affects modern-day South Africa, this so-called Cape Malay population. That It has real-world effects even today. One thing that amazed me was this small place, just two provinces mm. of the northern, exercised so much power so quickly. Well, not just this small place, but a very few people. Yeah. I mean that you know I would have said more about the um, about the whole labor situation and the fact that really this I mean one of the things that's sort of so important about the Netherlands at this point is that this is all that they have really you know the agriculture is the is the way that every other country sustains itself and England is is part of that the English this this is just icing on the cake to have an East India Company England agriculture and and wool and cloth which comes from their agriculture is what the English do. And so they just wanted to have this extra thing but for the Dutch it became politically vital that they are ab- were able to have uh, um, foreign trade because that that was what they lived on. And although there were manufacturing industries, those, those industries almost entirely brought their raw materials from elsewhere. And so I mean some of it did come from Europe by the rivers but an awful lot of it came from overseas. And that's one reason for the, um, for the strength of fee- 
feeling about uh, the Anglo-Dutch rivalry in the 17th century is that the the Dutch, they, they couldn't afford to lose these wars because if they lost their trade, they wouldn't be able to survive. They wouldn't have the credit that they needed to have. Yeah, before I forget, I just wanted to add my my point about silver because you were yeah. saying that they were stealing it from the, the Spanish. But in actual fact, what the Dutch are doing is something else than the English are doing because what they do is they have a very small country. They don't have a market of their own, well, a very small market. So what they do is their export, these goods that come, come from Asia are meant for export. That means that if you look at the silver, you export a little bit of silver, but you return with a lot of goods from Asia. That means that you sell them to other people who give you silver in return. So in actual fact, for the Dutch, the idea of exporting silver, in other countries you have huge debates about that. In, mm. in the Dutch Republic, nobody talks about that. The reason yeah. is simply because they re-export everything that they, mm-hmm. uh, they get from um, the Asia trade and get silver in return. So for them, it's not a problem. They gain more silver from this trade than that they lose. I wish, I'd, well, I wish we'd had time for that, yeah. I mean, it's interesting true. that, I mean, we think about mercantilism as being the system for everybody, but in fact, the Dutch claimed, although I don't think accurately, that they believed in free trade. And in, in Europe, yes. Indeed. I mean, in 1603, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not in, in Asia. Yeah, well, no, I mean, which, which the English pointed out, you know, but in 1608, Grotius wrote, you know, his Mare Librum about how there should be free trade. And that that was a big issue in their conflict with the English was, you know, the English said, you have, we have sovereignty in our waters. We have sovereignty over the seas. We, you know, you need to show respect to us by lowering your flag when you see a ship and so on. And the Dutch refused to do this. And, um, um, and yet when they went to East Asia, Asia. I mean, they were as busy trying to capture markets as anybody else. Yeah. Do the same thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Interesting, the connection with South Africa, which you didn't have time to bring up, mm. isn't it, Helen? Yes, that's right. I mean, if you go to Stellenbosch, it's like a little Dutch town mm. out in the out in the Cape, and um, all these vineyards around it. And, yeah, the, the Cape Malay, I, mean, I think I bought chocolate bar, which had Cape Malay seasoning on it, mm. which was these spices and the, the food, the influence on food mm. in South Africa. Uh, the, the wine producing started in the time of the Dutch East India Company. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they brought in uh, French Huguenots to to set up these. Uh, well, the word wine has alluded as has alerted the producer Simon Tillotson, who is about to offer us. Well, I'd offer you tea or coffee, given it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> there are many more history and discussion programs from Radio Four to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk/radio4.